So my question earlier was, how do you feel? My guess is that the answer you gave was actually more accurately to the question, what are you feeling? We use this question of how to actually mean what. So what are you feeling? I'm feeling sadness. I'm feeling joy. I'm feeling excitement. I'm feeling hope, whatever it is. The question that I was asking, however, is how? How is one to feel? What are the skills necessary for feeling well? What is the wisdom necessary for feeling well? Our series this summer addresses, seeks to address that question, how do you feel? How is it possible to feel well when life feels so bad? How is it that Paul, in the midst of suffering, commands us to rejoice? How is it that on the eve before walking into Canaan, the Lord says to Joshua, be strong and courageous? What? Clearly, Scripture has in view that there is a way to feel well when life feels so bad. To feel well in a world that feels so bad. As we might have said it last week, given what we know about ourselves and about one another... Given what we know about the world we live in, how can we feel well? Given what we know about Christ and what he did, given what we know about what Christ knew when he did what he did, and given what we know about ourselves and our deeply rooted tendency to flee from him, to wander from him, to drift from him, to shrink back from him. How shall we then feel well when we feel so bad? Of course, if we feel frustrated and afraid and angry and discouraged and discontent in such a world, it's entirely understandable. It's entirely understandable that Joshua would have been afraid that he would have been feeling his weakness. It's entirely understandable that Paul, languishing in prison, would have been quite sad. That's understandable. After all, given what we know about ourselves and our world, who wouldn't feel badly in such circumstances? If we feel happy or content or joyful or hopeful about the day or the week, our inner cynic has taught us to not get used to it because the feeling will pass. Our feelings, you see, are notoriously fluid and fickle. 
Our emotions are infamously unruly. Our passions and desires frequently fickle. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, depending on the day, depending on the comment, depending on the relationship, depending on the conversation, depending on the business environment, depending on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. The culture around us is really flashy, but it's not really wise. And the culture around us In the culture around us, our desires and our emotions and our feelings just are. This is just how I feel, we say. And since they just are, they are, in fact, the highest good, the ultimate truth, the trump card. It's just what I feel. And what I feel trumps what you believe. As one friend I was chatting with about this sermon series said, our culture teaches us that our feelings are ours. They belong to me. As as me. My feelings are mine alone. They have no bearing on the life of the community that we are a part of. Nobody has the right to question the way I feel. It's not your business. If my feelings affect my neighbor, well, too bad for my neighbor, our culture says. Our king says differently. My friend continues, we are so trained to not question our feelings that we have become divorced from them. They just, since they just are, we know we're feeling something, but we can't even nail down what it is exactly and why does it matter since it just is. So we wind up in this vague funk that causes us to self-isolate diminishes our ability to see and understand our circumstances clearly and inhibits our ability to actively participate in the kingdom and the mission of the king. And of course, all of this is exasperated and intensified and magnified by the go, 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 always pursuing the next thing speed of our culture. Whatever you do, don't make me think I don't have time for that. And then it gets even more complicated for those of us who are in the evangelical subculture because in some evangelical traditions, we're only supposed to feel positive things. Don't worry, be happy. Isn't that what the Proverbs say? And for those of you who are wondering, no, they don't. Some evangelicals' traditions say you should only... Be happy. You should only feel joy. They are the only legitimate emotions that any follower of Jesus Christ can experience. Other traditions promote a sort of gospel stoicism. And that's considered the highest good. Neither happy nor sad, but some sort of innocuous, undefinable 
non-emotion there in the middle, and it feel, leaves us feeling numb, tired, exhausted, alone, like we're wandering in a wilderness. Our enemy has done a number on us, brothers and sisters. We are in a battle, and it is a battle for our souls. The problem with the culture at large and our evangelical culture also is that these distortions gain traction because there's an element of truth that exists within the lie, within the distortion. Desires, emotions, and feelings are, in fact, a common part of being genuinely human that are experienced by all men, all women, all children, in all places, in all times. They are just a fact of our life as human beings. That's true. And although desires and feelings are common to all people in all places, it does not follow that they constitute ultimate and unassailable truth. It's true that the gospel is good news that brings genuine and lasting joy and happiness to a fallen people who yet remain living in a, as a fallen people in a fallen world. It's true. The gospel provides real ways to be really joyful in a fallen world. The problem is that all of these, to some extent or another, in one way or another, deny our humanity. The gospel of God's great love in Jesus Christ calls us to and equips us for feeling in particular ways, for feeling well, for feeling our anger well, for feeling our sadness well, for feeling our frustration well, for feeling our joy well, for feeling our happiness well. In a world that feels all of those things so poorly, a world that in fact feels less and less, a world that in fact feels a radically limited and, dis and profoundly distorted range of emotions. The faith of God's love in Jesus and the hope of God's love in Jesus train us to feel well, to live out the peacemaking realities of God's love in Jesus. To get at this in terms of introducing our series today, I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 12. So I'm going to encourage you to open your Bible or perhaps open a pew Bible. As one of my friends reminded me this morning, it is healthy to feel the weight of God's word in your hand, to feel it rest upon your lap. And because we're not accustomed to that, will you please pay attention to those who are around you as you navigate to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read it now, and before we get into it, we're going to take a side trip into another passage. But read with me, if you will, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore... 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, in that verse, we get an inspired tool for feeling well in a world that feels so poorly. Let's go to him in prayer then. So Father, we do pray that you would meet with us during this time that you would speak to us, that you would once again take this word and pierce through the clouds of our fear and our anger and our frustration, our distractions, our burdens and our worries, even our joys and our sorrows. That, Father God, we may hear you speak and we may behold your Son, Jesus Christ, the glory of your living and loving word. Protect us, Oh, Father, from the cynicism we have so deeply imbibed from our culture and feast us upon the hope of your word, for we pray in Jesus. Amen. It is a truism that we live in a culture of fear. Most people would agree with that. Most people would certainly understand what is meant by that. We fear all kinds of things. My guess is I could ask any one of you, we could spend the next hour having you list off the things that you or someone you know is afraid of. Germs, pain, truth, lies. We're afraid of being deceived. We're afraid of getting sick. We're afraid of dying. We're afraid of losing control or someone else being in control. We're fear of We're afraid of being disrespected and abandoned and betrayed. We're afraid of loneliness and isolation and loss. Some of these fears loom larger for some than for others. Sometimes they loom larger than at other times. But they are always there. They are always at play, shaping the ways we feel about ourselves. And about one another. And about our circumstances. And so what we believe about these things. And it shapes what we believe about these things. And therefore what we think about these things. And therefore how we speak about these things. And therefore how we speak about these things. And how we decide therefore to act. For truly out of the heart is the overflow of our passions. This makes us vulnerable to tyranny of all manner of distorted and misguided and therefore deadly emotions. Have you ever watched a car commercial and watched how they convince you that you do, in fact, need that new Lexus? You don't want to be left behind, do you? I mean, what will people think of you if you drive around in an old model Toyota Sienna? 
In a world of such distorted and misguided, misguided and deadly desires and emotions, is it possible for you and for me, for us, to feel well? That is to say, is it possible to faithfully cultivate our emotions and desires and to express them in such a way that honors our humanity, brings glory to God, and furthers His shalom-making mission in the people in the world around us? Is it possible to feel angry well? Is it possible to feel discouraged well? Is it possible to feel disappointed faithfully? My contention is that yes, in fact, it is. Not to say that it is easy, but it is possible. This is the set of questions that I hope for us to explore this summer. Before we get into our passage, I want to remind you of a well-known passage. Because it is a passage that will echo, hopefully, throughout the summer. It's the climactic summary of Paul's great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Boy, we love that chapter. We read it at weddings because we love the love chapter. We love talking about love. Now listen to how he summarizes that chapter. He summarizes it in this way. Now, so now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Because we like to yank this chapter out of context, and because we like that verse we like to put that verse on little plaques and hang them on our doors or whatever. We tend to lose sight of what he's saying. Paul is not listing out the, his three favorite virtues, faith, hope, and love. These are not separate virtues, and it happens to be that Paul thinks that love is the greatest, but you may think that faith is the greatest, and someone else may think hope is the greatest, and that's your choice. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not listing separate virtues that can be variously prioritized. Paul's language of greatest notwithstanding, I'll come back to that in a moment, Rather, these are three inseparable, interrelated virtues that, like the triunity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit itself, forms one complete whole. Remove any part from the interrelation, abstract even one for the purpose of examination from the others, and you no longer have the same thing. This faith that he is speaking about here without this hope and without this love is no longer this faith. It's something else entirely. This hope without this faith and without this love taken on its own is no longer this hope, but it's something else entirely. And so also this love without this faith and without this hope taken on its own is something else entirely. 
For Paul, this is not merely, this verse is not merely a summary of love, but it is the summary of the genuine, authentic life of a Christ follower. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like to be a follower of Jesus Christ, is what Paul is saying. This is the substance of that life. This is the direction of that life. This is the expression of that life. That is what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Remember that Paul is writing to a congregation that is horribly fragmented, horribly distorted by their own passions, passions shaped and prioritized like ours by the prevailing culture around them. This is a congregation in which rivalries abound, sectarianism abounds. In which people say, you're not who I thought you were. Stay on that side of the room. And as he writes to them, right from the beginning, he points them to Jesus Christ and him crucified. He reminds them, that was my message. You see, in trying to equip the Corinthian congregation with the gospel to faithfully navigate the currents of their culture that ran through their own hearts and minds, conversations and congregations, Paul tells them, so for all of this, you have the faith of the gospel and the hope of the gospel coming to expression in the love of the gospel. The reason that Paul describes love as the greatest of these is not that you can take your pick of virtues, but that when you have a solid gospel faith and you have a solid and growing gospel hope, it will unavoidably express itself in a growing gospel love that he has just described in 1 Corinthians 13. My prayer for our series this summer is that, the gospel, that this gospel lens of faith, hope, and love will help us to consider and more clearly see our emotions so that we may more faithfully harness them and train them and faithfully express them as a congregation together so that we may more faithfully feel well together in ways that do justice to our humanity, honors the glory of God, and furthers the shalom-making purposes of Jesus Christ. And so with that long um, uh, sort of um, detour, turn your eyes now to Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 10, we were just reminded of just a few minutes ago, is an important thing for the theme of this summer and is important for the theme of understanding chapter 12. Remember what... <laughs> Allow me to read God's word to you from Hebrews chapter 10. Just listen. Hebrews chapter 10 begins Christ's sacrifice once for all and then beginning in verse 19 
Hebrews says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us therefore draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And he goes on and he concludes in terms of this chapter in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back. We are not of those who drift away, he has said in another context, and, are so, and so are destroyed. But we are those who have faith and so preserve their souls. And then that raises the question, well, what is this faith? And that's where we come into Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. What? What does that look like? What does that sound like? What does that feel like? And then you get the famous Hebrews chapter 11 hall of faith. This is what gospel faith looks like and feels like in real life. So then he concludes that. He says there's all kinds of examples we can give. And he, and he goes on and he has spoken about Abraham and Abel and and Enoch, and Moses, and all of these other people. And he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and and the, the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The language there is of the ancient world, and and it's a race. And it is not, as we might imagine it, a matter of gathering in a stadium, a bunch of people who have never run a race before, gathering in a stadium and watching these people run a 400-meter dash around a, a track. When I do that, I think, man, that is amazing. I wish I could run like that. Or when I'm watching... Someone throw the javelin. Wow, that's amazing. I could never do that. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here, rather, is think of a long distance run. Think of a marathon. And what it is, is as the people cross the finish line and they and they receive their crown, they loop back around and they add themselves to the cheering crowds at the end of the line. If any of you have run cross-country, you know the, the, um, the rush that you get as you come down the final stretch and there are more people close to the finish line than anywhere else on the track, and they are screaming and they are hollering, and there's this, there's this electrical pulse that goes down your spine, and you, and you start running faster than you ever thought possible. Where does that energy come from? That's what's in mind here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, 
Since we are surrounded by a crowd of witnesses that includes Abel, includes Abraham, includes Moses, includes Sarah and Rahab. Since they're the ones cheering for us, let us press on. Because their story tells us the race can be finished. The race can be won. Let us therefore lay aside every weight and the sin which so which clings so closely. The language there speaks not of particular sins, but of the sin that makes us the root sin that makes us vulnerable to all the dis, sinful distractions and follies. Brothers and sisters, let us work hard to brush them off. So that we may run well. Let us run with endurance. That's the language of patience that James uses in James chapter 1. It's the language of steadfastness. That all people of God have come to celebrate and cherish. The steadfast love of the Lord that endures with us forever. And let us then look to Jesus, is how the writer here says it. Elsewhere, Paul says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who is, and here we go, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Faith is an ambiguous term throughout Scripture, because sometimes faith, as in chapter 11, is used as a practice, as a discipline. Exercise your faith. Have faith. To faith is sometimes how I say it, much to many of your chagrins. Faith as a practice is what we often think of. Something that we practice, and that's true. However, if we stop there, we find ourselves putting our faith in the practices of faith. And so you see these wonderful bumper stickers that say, just believe. You've got to have faith. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you have faith in. Just have faith. But our author is not saying that. Our author is actually pointing us to the substance of what is believed and who is believed. Look to Jesus who is the Alpha and the Omega of your faith, the founder and the finisher, the source and the perfecter of your faith. When we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, this is what we are referring to. It's just not just that we have faith in something that makes us feel good. We have faith in someone who has done something. The faith, Paul refers to it as the faith or the tradition of the fathers, the tradition of the apostles, is what is believed. It is the substance of what we believe. It is the object of what we believe. It is that in which we place our trust. But remember that the lens is faith, hope, and love. And hope in our, in our, um, 
in our minds is less of a substance and more of an inkling, more of a, of a direction. Biblically, it's more of a direction. It's still more of a destination. Even more so, it's a, a specific kind of destination. It's a destination in which we get to meet Jesus face to face and converse with him and commune with him unhindered by our sin. Brothers and sisters, that is the Christian hope. There is no other. You see, the hope of the gospel is part of a theme that is developing throughout Scripture, and it begins in Eden. You remember what Eden was like. God created man and God created woman. Behold, when all things were done, it was all very good. They lived in perfect, sinless harmony, one with another and with their God. It was, shall I say, a paradise. But as you know, Eden was lost. And it's not just that Eve ate an apple. Eden was lost because they didn't like paradise. They wanted paradise for themselves. They wanted to be king. They wanted to rule supreme. That's not how we were made. It's not how they were made. And almost immediately after Eden is lost, we have God coming and saying to them what happened and making a promise to them, I will redeem it. I will fix it. The rest of Scripture from Genesis 3.15 on is the story of Jesus himself, of God himself making it right. And so we have the story of the promise to Abraham. We have the story of Israelites in Egypt and them coming out. We have the story of God himself designing and erecting among his people his tent, his tabernacle. We have Israel among the nations and we have that great city, Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of shalom, what the prophets called Zion, the dwelling place of God. Our hope is that God will make his dwelling among us and that we would exist together as brothers and sisters in his presence without fear, but in absolute shalom, peace, flourishing peace one with another. You see, faith is a substance and hope is this certain direction in which Jesus Christ himself is moving, in which all it is the goal of all of our deepest longings that now are fully and freely satisfied in Jesus Christ. And that's why Matthew says in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be super satisfied. When all of our failures have been addressed in the life and death of Jesus Christ, and when all of our greatest aspirations are secured in the resurrection and ascension and present-day reign of Jesus Christ, then, brothers and sisters, you understand that we are free. Indeed, we are um, helplessly compelled to love one another. 
So if that's the lens, how does that help us to feel well? So very quickly, today's lectionary reading, although you could use Psalm 40 as Albert has just encouraged you to do, and so I would encourage you to do that. Work through Psalm 40, both parts of it as we had it read today, and watch how the psalmist is working himself through talking himself through the substance of what he believes and therefore the hope of what that he has and how he causes his emotions to be trained by that. But we also see it in Psalm 63. Psalm 63 is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah because, you might remember, he had been betrayed by his son and the kingdom was being yanked from his hands. So listen to what the psalmist says, David. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He does not deny that he is in a dry and weary land. But he knows where to look. He knows where to flee. And so I look upon you where? In the sanctuary. I look upon you in the presence of your people in the sanctuary. In the place where I hear the hymns, where I hear the prayers, where I see the sacrifices. Where I'm reminded of what you are done. I look upon you in the sanctuary. I behold there your power and your glory. The glory and the power of your steadfast love, which is better than life. And so my lips praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Then notice this. It's easy for us to read it in our five-minute morning devotion and miss it. But look, verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. That's the image that is in view in Matthew chapter 5. But I want you to note something. Therefore, my soul will be satisfied. Because of who he has looked, fixed his eyes upon, he knows that tomorrow and next week and next month and all of those days coming down the pike, that he will be satisfied. He has confident hope because of who he sees in the sanctuary. But notice this also. We use the language of will as a language of, well, will. He exerts his will. Because of who I see, I will do. He's not just a victim of his emotions. He harnesses his emotions to the glory and the power of the God he sees when he comes into the sanctuary. Therefore, I will satisfy myself with you as feasting on fat and rich foods. My mouth will praise you. I will remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Brothers and sisters, I have said this before, but I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about everything but the steadfast faithfulness of our God. It is hard work to harness the stallions of emotions run wild to the glory and the power of the one we behold in his sanctuary among his people. 
but it is well worth it. And that is what our writer has in view when he speaks about enduring. So our emotions, you see, brothers and sisters, as we go through this summer, will provide for us an occasion to examine ourselves. So I get angry. Perhaps you get angry. I get frustrated. Perhaps you get frustrated. I get frustrated with my wife. I know that's shocking, and I know that's hard for you to imagine, as sweet as she is. I get frustrated with my kids. I feel sad, feel discouraged, feel isolated, feel alone. These are all things that I feel. And I can give you good reasons for feeling that way, as I'm sure you can give me good reasons for the way you feel. But all of these feelings give us an occasion to examine ourselves. Dan, are you angry because you are not on the throne? Or are you angry because you found evidence that others believe that Christ is not on the throne? Are you discouraged because your kingdom is not coming or your will is not being done in heaven as it is on earth? I ask these questions because, frankly, usually the answer in my case is yes, that's why I'm angry. Usually yes, that's why I'm discouraged. Are we feeling lost, alone, exhausted, and isolated because we have struck out on our own in the pursuit of our own dreams? Brothers and sisters, That's usually when I feel lost and isolated. When whether in my mind or my heart or my body, I strike out on my own into the wilderness. The answers to these types of questions do not change the facts of how I am feeling, but they do change their meaning and how I faithfully respond to and express how I'm feeling. Brothers and sisters, if I am lonely and isolated because I have struck out on my own into the wilderness where there is no water or provision, then the healthy response is what the Bible calls repentance. Confession that I have been lost and wandering about in pursuit of my own dreams and coming back to the sanctuary of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if I am angry because I am not on the throne of my own destiny and on the throne of my own kingdom, then the faithful response is confession and repentance. The faithful response is what our children reminded us of, of this today. Dan, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You are a bondservant of the king. His is the kingdom you serve. His is the mission you serve. Not yours. Not your dreams. Almost invariably, my emotions are misrooted. Usually, I am happy. I sing because I'm happy. And what do I sing usually when I'm happy? Zippity-doo-dah. Zippity-A, 
Wonderful feeling, wonderful day. Why? Because everything's going my way. How was your day, Dan? It was great. All the things that I got to do. And I often feel sad because zippity doo da, zippity yay, everything's not going my way, but going someone else's way and going God's way for crying out loud. His ways are so strange, aren't they? They're so mystifying. They're so far above our ways. I don't get it. You'd think that if God were really wise and really good and really trustworthy, he would get a really wise and really good and really trustworthy person to lead his people. But he got Moses. He got David. He got Abraham. He got Sarah. He got Samson. There's hope in that, you see. Because in his goodness and in his wisdom and his trustworthiness, in Jesus Christ, he has accomplished and he will bring to perfect completion the great mission that he has begun. And that is the mission to which we harness our emotions, to which we harness our feelings, to which we harness our ups and downs. Because that is the mission that will succeed. And we know that because Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, brothers and sisters, as those who bear the name of Jesus Christ, we are not free to pursue and fulfill the desires of our own hearts, to feel however we please, no matter how many people in our culture tell us this. We are not free to vent when, where, and however we see fit whether in straight-up gossip or concealed as prayer concerns. We are just not free. But as those who bear the name of Christ, we are required by God's glory and we are equipped by God's gospel, the faith, the hope, and the love of God's gospel to experience the full range of human emotion faithfully and well. To feel well for a world that feels so poorly, to feel our anger and our joy and our discouragement and our loneliness and our contentment or our discontentment, our fears and our offenses and our insecurities, etc., etc., etc. To feel all of this well for a world that feels so poorly because our neighbors want to know, can I feel well in circumstances like mine? Yes. Because by the gospel we know that God's love has accomplished great things and it will bring it to perfect completion. Let us harness ourselves to that faith and to that hope that we may live in that love. And so, Father, we do come.